This is a recording of On Doctrine and Covenants Language and the 1833 Plot of Zion by Stanford Carmack. Abstract. Contrary to the generally accepted view, it seems likely that much of the wording of the Doctrine and Covenants was transmitted to Joseph Smith as part of the revelatory process. Apparent bad grammar and a limited reading of After the Manner of Their Language, DNC 124, have led to the received view that the language of the Revelations was Joseph Smith's. This judgment, however, is probably inaccurate. Abundant cases of archaic forms and structures, sometimes overlapping with Book of Mormon usage, argue for a different interpretation of after the manner of their language. Scholars have chosen, for the most part, to disregard the implications of a large amount of complex, archaic, well-formed language found in both scriptural texts. As for the 1833 plot of Zion, transmitted words in Doctrine and Covenants Revelations, a key statement by Frederick G. Williams, and a small but significant amount of internal archaic usage mean that the layout, dimensions, and even some of the language of the city plat were specifically revealed as well. The impetus for this study was a desire to determine whether one could reasonably take the mile measurement of the June 1833 plot of Zion as conveying an archaic sense that had become obsolete long before the 1830s. Because the city plat was given around the same time as sections 93 to 98, an analysis of Doctrine and Covenants language was determined to be essential to the task. One item of archaic vocabulary in the Doctrine and Covenants is the adjective strange in Strange Act, DNC 95.4.101.95. This is a biblical phrase, Isaiah 28.21, and different modern versions of the Bible translate the Hebrew adjective in this Isaiah passage as alien, unusual, extraordinary, strange, disturbing, mysterious, or unwanted. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, some of these are obsolete meanings, and extraordinary seems to be a good fit for the Doctrine and Covenants usage, which corresponds to definition 8 in the OED, second edition. Of a kind that is unfamiliar or rare, unusual, uncommon, exceptional, singular, out of the way, obsolete. We note that the sections containing the archaic phrase, Strange Act, were revealed in June 1833 and December 1833, around the same time the city plat was revealed. That is one small point in favor of the possibility of archaism in plot language. An appendix contains the plot description laid out in sense lines. Frederick G. Williams, the scribe for the draft of the plot of Zion, wrote the following on the manuscript of the closely affiliated Plan of the House of the Lord. Quote, N.B., for your satisfaction, we inform you that the plot for the city and the size, form, and dimensions of the house were given us of the Lord. Close quote. Here Williams asserts that the details of the plot and the plan were revealed. On the basis of evidence given in this paper, we can reasonably conclude that the various measurements of the city plot and the temple plan set down in writing in 1833 were tightly controlled. One of the purposes of this paper is to show that in some detail. However, one cannot determine by scholarly means that the plot description was tightly controlled throughout. A considerable portion of its wording could have been under loose control or even no control as part of this particular extra-canonical revelatory process. As mentioned, one possibility of tight control in the delivery of the plot of Zion is the term mile. It is used at the very beginning of the plot description and does not correspond to the English statutory mile in effect in 1830s America. A simple calculation from specified plot dimensions leads to that conclusion. The question boils down to whether the mile of the plot was an error, or whether it could be an obsolete 16th century measurement, 
which fits the plot description. This is given a fuller treatment in the last section of this paper. It is reasonable to consider tightly controlled elements of the plot of Zion, since there are substantive linguistic reasons for taking a goodly portion of the Doctrine and Covenants to be revealed words. Frederick G. Williams was also involved, at the time he drafted the plot, with scribing dozens of revelations that would later become part of the Doctrine and Covenants. Indeed, the plot of Zion was set down in writing between the time that sections 93 and 94 were revealed to Joseph Smith, with Williams acting as scribe. Moreover, some language of the Doctrine and Covenants is found in the plot description, and D&C 94.2 states that the Lord revealed the pattern of the city. Outline of Article This paper first discusses aspects of revelatory translation. In order to do this, I focus on the form and structure of the language, an almost entirely neglected field of inquiry. My focus on these aspects of a language doesn't mean I think they are more important than the content. It's just that the study of the form and structure of a language is the most effective way to determine whether ideas or words were transmitted to Joseph Smith. Next, I examine various types of language found in early manuscripts and printings that would later become sections of the DNC, showing how they are likely to be instances of tightly controlled language. The primary sources used in this study are given at the end of this article. These recently created digital databases have dramatically improved the analysis of revelatory language, greatly increasing our knowledge and understanding of it. Doctrine and Covenants language is directly relevant to the 1833 plot of Zion, since some contemporary revelations refer to the plot and some of the language is found in the plot. These linguistic facts, together with the above supporting statement written down by Frederick G. Williams, mean that it is not a stretch to think that parts of the plot description could have been tightly controlled in the revelatory process. After attempting to establish that words were transmitted to Joseph Smith as part of Doctrine and Covenants revelations, I then discuss some of its questionable grammar. This has a bearing on plot language, since it also contains some suspect grammar. In addition, there is a tendency to wrongly think that Quote, bad grammar in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of Covenants means the language could not have been rendered into English by the Lord. Rather, we find that the apparently poor grammar fits the literate writings of early Eng earlier English, at times in arcane ways, actually strengthening the argument for tight control. Finally, I discuss some of the archaic and modern language found in the plot of Zion. Terminology, phraseology, and syntax are briefly noted, as well as some rather unique design elements of the community plot and the temple plan. On Revelatory Translation and Trite Control Those who are opposed to tight control in relation to the Book of Mormon tend to misunderstand or misrepresent what it might mean in terms of Book of Mormon translation. The view of tight control does not declare that there was a 16th century translator of the text, or a 17th century translator, etc., the position of tight control is that the Lord rendered the ancient Nephite record into English, or had it done, and then transmitted this translation to Joseph Smith. The process of rendering the plate text into English is unknowable without specific revelation on the matter. Furthermore, tight control can involve modern English vocabulary and syntax as well as early modern English, 1500 to 1700, and even some late Middle English. Tight control, however, is typically established by a subset of early modern English that had become obsolete or very rare by the 1820s, and by systematic archaic usage that fits the early modern English era exclusively. That the language of the Book of Mormon is not a monolithic variety of English does nothing to weaken the evidence that the Lord caused words to come to Joseph Smith, words that he then relayed to scribes. 
to a more limited degree, this type of analysis can be carried out in relation to Doctrine and Covenants language. Especially important to consider in this regard are the earlier revelations, given before or concurrently with the Book of Mormon dictation. Forms and syntactic structures that were obsolete, archaic, or rare in the early 19th century English point to a tightly controlled revelatory process, especially because receipt of the early revelations matched that of the Book of Mormon. The majority of the language, however, encompasses usage that persisted for centuries. In the case of the Book of Mormon, abundant manuscript evidence and textual evidence support strongly support the view that words were transmitted to Joseph Smith. For some, the question arises whether the revelatory process could have involved a mixture of tightly controlled and loosely controlled language. This is theoretically possible, but there are substantial problems with such a view. The main issue is that one cannot reliably distinguish between tight and loose control in the original manuscript and in the text. For example, suppose the they was of First Nephi 4.4 is taken to be loosely controlled language. Immediately after they was, we encounter two instances of did paraphrases. This prevalent Book of Mormon usage is only a systematic fit with mid-16th century patterns, patterns that Joseph was almost certainly unaware of in the 1820s. If we accept a mixture of tightly and loosely controlled revelatory language for they was, yet wroth, and did still continue to murmur, we must accept that the translation process switched between transmitted ideas and words in the same sentence, in this case, and in many others like it, thousands of times. The same issue exists with the thousands or thousand or so instances of personal which. For example, Adam and Eve, which was, our first parents, First Nephi 5.11. If the systematically extra-biblical and archaic relative pronoun usage of personal which was tightly controlled, while the verb agreement was loosely controlled, then again the view must be that there was a mixture of transmitted words and ideas within the same sentence, in this case and in many others like it. Suppose then we stipulate that there was less frequent changing of the translation process. In other words, lengthier passages were tightly and loosely controlled. Less frequent but continual switching is unlikely, however, for at least a couple of reasons. First, the longer the passage, the more likely we are to encounter extra-biblical archaic usage. There are probably more than 4,000 instances of such usage in the earliest text, out of approximately 250,000 words, excluding lengthier biblical passages. That means that we can find stretches of 100 words or so without potential cases of extra-biblical archaism, but not many of them. Second, when we consider the original manuscript and its 75,000 extant words, there is no original manuscript evidence that the dictation changed character repeatedly. That is, there is no convincing evidence of indecision over lexical or syntactic choice, since such corrections are extremely minimal in occurrence. It is a uniformly dictated text with dictation-type errors. If Joseph had been periodically and repeatedly responsible for lexical and syntactic choice under loose control, the rate of scribal correction would have been higher. That is because a human trying to accurately convey a divine revelation would have changed his mind about how to express revealed ideas to a noticeable degree. Another important item to consider is biblical passages. The dictation witnesses the unchanging manuscript character at transition points between non-biblical and biblical passages, for example, 1 Nephi 19-20 through and 1 Nephi 21-22, through and the more than 800-word and constituent differences between King James and Book of Mormon versions indicate that a Bible was not used in the dictation. 
The figure of more than 800 differences derives from careful comparative work carried out by Royal Skousen. But the otherwise close match with King James passages points to words, not ideas, being sent to Joseph Smith during the dictation. Otherwise, the differences in wording between the two texts would have been much greater than they are. In other words, 800-plus differences are more than one reasonably expects from copying, but fewer than what are reasonably expected from memory. Consistent tight control is also likely to have been the case in contemporary Doctrine and Covenants revelations, and there is no compelling reason that it could not have been the case in many later revelations. Editing and Grammar in the Doctrine and Covenants The Book of Mormon is of primary importance in determining the nature of the revelatory process between the Lord and Joseph Smith. That is because there is no critical text of the Doctrine and Covenants at this time, and its textual history is complex and difficult. A wide variety of emendations have been made through the years, and a large number have a difficult textual history. Some edits have obscured various archaic features of original revelatory dictations, and some of these have involved questionable grammar and nearby variation, but others have not. In many cases, it is hard to be certain of original readings for Doctrine and Covenants passages. Also, some early manuscripts have been lost. This state of affairs hampers us in analyzing its language. Nevertheless, the Joseph Smith Papers Project and website are helpful resources, as citations throughout this paper show. In general, the Doctrine and Covenants is not as consistently archaic as the Book of Mormon. For example, there are fewer instances of archaic vocabulary, and the relative pronoun who is generally used in the Doctrine and Covenants after human antecedents, while the Book of Mormon favors which. Also, there is less archaic verbal th morphology in the Doctrine and Covenants than in the Book of Mormon. First, we take a look at language that has not tended to be edited out, that has been generally regarded as acceptable. Then we consider a few items of suspect grammar. These have usually been edited to conform with generally acceptable modern standards. The language to be considered includes acceptable grammar, save it be slash was slash were, dual object syn command syntax, if there shall come, dual object cause syntax, if it so be, expedient in me, of which hath been spoken, and then suspect grammar, you thou switching, exceeding used with adjectives, you ye switching, the th plural, subjunctive indicative variation, the s plural, and plural was. Acceptable grammar and its implications. We begin by considering various types of language found in the Doctrine and Covenants that are uncommon or rare in the textual record, but which have probably been viewed as unobjectionable and have not been edited out. The presence of archaic, well-formed, extra-biblical language scattered throughout Doctrine and Covenants revelations casts doubt on the following conclusion by Bushman. Quote, the revealed preface to the Book of Commandments specified that the language of the revelations was Joseph Smith's, close quote. Although it is hard to pinpoint what exactly Bushman means by this statement when read in isolation, we can gather from the context that he concluded that much of the wording of the revelations came from Joseph's own language, influenced by his exposure through the years to the King James Bible. Bushman refers to the simple language of Joseph Smith, and on the following page indicates the possibility that Joseph's human mind may have introduced errors, as well as mentioning human language coming through the prophet. But he concludes this section on revelatory language with this sentence. The words were both his and God's. 
From all this, it seems most likely to me that Bushman meant that the language of these revelations was, in the main, loosely controlled, with God's language, King James' idiom, often coming through because of Joseph's familiarity with the Bible. In essence, Bushman seems to believe that in many instances, the Lord gave Joseph Smith ideas that he put into his own words. But his statements don't appear to rule out the possibility of occasional tight control. However, the relative degree of tight and loose control is not discussed. The principal reason for judgment such as Bushman's has been bad grammar. And more often than not, verb agreement peculiarities prompt a conclusion of loose control. But this ignores a large amount of textual evidence that informs us that the phrase, after the manner of their language, DNC 124, certainly must also encompass complex, well-formed language that was rare, archaic, even obsolete by the 1820s. Therein lies the difficulty. The revelations are full of archaic literary language mixed with occasional doses of bad grammar. Because of these facts, any explanatory view of revelatory language must account not only for bad grammar, but also for archaic literary language. During the revelatory process, Joseph would have recognized the archaic language, since it seems to have been filtered for recognition and even sometimes for plainness. But in case after case, the textual record tells us that it is very likely he would not have produced the wording from ideas. The phrase, after the manner of their language, doesn't force the conclusion that faulty verb agreement, from a modern prescriptive perspective, was the result of Joseph putting ideas into his own words. First, some questionable subject-verb agreement could just as well have been archaic language, such as plural subjects used with singular verb inflection treated below. Second, we cannot rule out the possibility that the Lord might have tailored some of the language to fit Joseph's American dialectal usage. Nor can we conclude from tight control in relation to the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants that the Lord favors early modern English in an absolute sense. Both scriptural texts contain modern language as well as many archaisms, and they contain plenty of good grammar as well as some bad grammar. In summary, rare, archaic, obsolete language in the Doctrine and Covenants, Revelations, indicates tight control. In isolation, modern usage, non-standard grammar, or common archaisms, for example, high-frequency biblical language, could be either tightly or loosely controlled language. But in the Book of Mormon, non-standard grammar is very weak evidence for loose control. In many cases, it actually turns out to be evidence for tight control, as shown by non-superficial analysis. And non-standard grammar in the Doctrine and Covenants that proceeds in time or is coextensive with the Book of Mormon language should be considered in the same light. Tight control is able to cover all instances, but loose control fails to convincingly explain the presence of rare, archaic, obsolete language, as the following discussion attempts to demonstrate. Summary of Findings in the Domain of Acceptable Grammar some rare, archaic grammar first appears in the Doctrine and Covenants before or close in time to when it was first dictated in the Book of Mormon, not counting the lost 1828 dictation. Here's a list that shows the acceptable grammar discussed in this section, along with its earliest use in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Book of Mormon, assuming that the dictation began with Mosiah. A chart now follows in the body of the article that shows the type of language, the earliest occurrence in the DNC, the date for that, and the earliest Book of Mormon occurrence. I have caused him that he should enter, DNC 5.3, was dictated before, quote, King Mosiah did cause his people that they should till, Mosiah 6.7. This syntax was either obsolete or very rare by the modern period, after the year 1700.
Quote, I have commanded him that he should stand. DNC 5.2 was dictated before, quote, and hath commanded me that I should declare. Mosiah 2.30. This archaic syntax is biblical. And commanded them that they should take nothing. Mark 6.8. Original instances were rare by the early 19th century. Of the three non-biblical save phrases, save it be, was, were, Indicative past tense, save it was, DNC 9-7, was probably dictated before the earliest Book of Mormon appearance. The first instances of subjunctive present tense, save it be, were dictated close in time to each other. Subjunctive past tense, save it were, DNC 18-35, was dictated more than a month after the first Book of Mormon occurrence. Rare, of which hath been spoken, DNC 8-1, was dictated before Helaman 16-16. I will not suffer that Satan shall accomplish, DNC 10.14, may have been dictated months before, in 1828, or close in time, in April 1829, to God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time, Mosiah 13.3. Rare, if it so be that, should, DNC 18.15, was dictated close in time to structurally identical 1 Nephi 19.19. Wherefore it behooveth me that he should be ordained, DNC 21.10, was dictated almost ten months after it behooveth the Father that it should come forth from the Gentiles, 3 Nephi 21.6. The archaic expression exemplified by there shall a record be kept, DNC 21.1, is not found in either the Book of Mormon or the King James Bible. This phraseology is akin to Shakespeare's there shall not a maid be married. Second part of Henry the Sixth, four seven one twenty one to one twenty two. The archaic expression exemplified by "It is expedient in me that thou shalt open thy mouth," DNC thirty five, is not found in either the Book of Mormon or the King James Bible. An example with "should" has been found in the seventeenth century. Similar expressions without an "in" phrase are fairly common in the Book of Mormon. The King James Bible has one of these. Archaic "If there shall come." DNC 94.9, is not found in either the Book of Mormon or the King James Bible, but it is early modern English usage. While there is close-in-time production of identical archa archaisms, there are archaic Doctrine and Covenant structures whose dictation preceded that of the same archaic Book of Mormon structures. Thus, there is no compelling reason to attribute close-in-time Doctrine and Covenants archaisms to Book of Mormon usage. While there might have been influence in some cases, there is no conclusive evidence against the occurrence of separately revealed, tightly controlled wording. Save it be, was, were. There are eleven instances of save it be, was, were in the Doctrine and Covenants, sections 6, 9, 18, 33, 58, 61, 68, and 104, 1829 through 1834. This compact phraseology is rare in the textual record before 1830 and particularly suited to poetic use. As of this writing, I have encountered no American instance before the time of the Book of Mormon's publication. Nine of the eleven instances take the present tense subjunctive form, save it be. In writings published before 1830, the short phrase, save it be, has currently been verified in the works of three late 17th century Scottish authors, as well as once each in the 19th century works of an English clergyman who was also a translator and a botanist, and an Irish literary enthusiast. 
The earliest use of save it be in the Doctrine and Covenants can be seen in the 1833 Book of Commandments. Book of Commandments 5.5, D&C 6.12, April 1829. Make not thy gift known to any, save it be those which are of thy faith. The revelation was probably set down in writing before Alma 58.31, which reads identically in part, all save it be those which have been taken prisoners. Even considering this evidence in isolation, we can reasonably assert that this five-word phrase was very likely tightly controlled in both instances. Had it not been tightly controlled, we would probably read the three-word phrase, except those who, in both Book of Commandments 5.5 5 and Alma 58.31. Interestingly, the nine instances of Save It Be in the Doctrine and Covenants are roughly equal to the number currently verified in the earlier textual record. This means that there are no writings that employ this rare phrase in any frequency close to what is found in Doctrine and Covenants revelations. The phrase, Save It Was, is found in D&C 9.7. This phrase is even rarer in the pre-1830 textual record than Save It Be. William Tyndall employed the phrase as part of his glossary to the book of Exodus in 1530. There is also an instance in a 1607 poetic translation of Ariosto's Orlando Furioso and another 17th century example found in early English books online or in literature online. Save that it was is the phrase encountered in the textual record more often, but neither the Doctrine and Covenants nor the Book of Mormon ever employs this short phrase type with the complementizer that. The phrase save it were is found in D&C 1835. This might be even rarer than in the pre-1830 textual record than save it was. Currently, we know of an obscure poetic instance by a Scotsman in 1646 and an instance in an old Scottish folk song, published occasionally beginning no later than 1751. In summary, the phrase type, save it be, was, were, as found 11 times in the Doctrine and Covenants and 128 times in the Book of Mormon, is very likely to be tightly controlled revelatory language. Dual Object Command Syntax because the original production of dual-object syntax after the verb command was rare by the 1820s, instances of this construction found in the Doctrine and Covenants are likely to be examples of tightly controlled language. The most complex case of this syntactic structure found in the Revelations is the following. DNC 124.38, 19 January 1841, transcribed by Robert B. Thompson. For for this cause I commanded Moses that he should build a tabernacle, that they should bear it with them in the wilderness, and to build a house in the land of promise, that those ordinances might be revealed which had been hid from before the world was. Moses is the first object after the verb commanded, and then there are two that clauses, which are also grammatical objects, followed by an infinitival complement. There's a switch from co-referential Moses he he refers to Moses, to partially distinct Moses they, Moses is part of they, and then to infinitival I commanded Moses to build. The complexity of the above structure and the rarity of mixed complementation in the textual record increase the likelihood that the wording here was tightly controlled. There are other examples of dual object command syntax in the Doctrine and Covenants, including DNC 5.2, 5.4, 1925, 26, and 28, and 76, 115. 
The last one in this list is noteworthy in that the command syntax is part of a relative clause, and it doesn't employ the complementizer that. TNC 76.115, 16 February 1832, copied between 16 February and 8 March 1832, handwriting of Frederick G. Williams and Joseph Smith, Jr., which he commanded us, we, should not write while we were yet in the spirit. Similar syntax can be seen in Alma 63.12 and Helaman 6.25, but the following is a precise match, since it also involves a dual-object structure in a relative clause. 1650, from Early English Books Online, A40026, George Foster, The Pouring Forth of the Seventh and Last Vial Upon All Flesh and Fleshliness, page 57. By his longing desire after the fruit which I had commanded him he should not eat of. The which commanded us we should not of DNC 76.15 exactly parallels Foster's which commanded him he should not. Both phrases have the relative pronoun which, repeated pronomials, and negation after should. Most complementation after the verb command in the Doctrine of Covenants, however, is infinitival. I haven't carried out an extremely careful tally, but a preliminary estimate yields a rate of 76% infinitival. This marks the text as distinct from the systematic usage of the Book of Mormon, which is only 21% infinitival. However, part of this large difference stems from the fact that there are many passive command verbs in the Doctrine of Covenants. Interestingly, almost all cases of infinite complementation in the Doctrine of Covenants are dual-object constructions which is the more archaic variety that had become rare by the 19th century. Therefore, the Doctrine and Covenants is an interesting hybrid of syntactic structures in this regard. It is somewhat biblical in its complementation distribution, not modern, and quite archaic in its heavy use of, of dual-object and finite command syntax. If there shall come. The phrase, if there shall come, is marked as archaic in two ways. By the use of existential there, with the intransitive verb come, and by the future subjunctive marker shall being used after the hypothetical if. The co-occurrence of these archaic elements in one short phrase makes it rare in the modern era. Surprisingly, there are no instances of the phrase if there shall in either the Book of Mormon or the King James Bible. The Doctrine of Covenants has one instance of this. DNC 94, 9, 2 August 1833, scribed by Frederick G. Williams. But if there shall come into it any unclean thing, my glory shall not be there, and my presence shall not come into it. The Early English Books Online database currently contains 21 examples of this forward phrase. Significantly, neither Google Books nor Lion provides examples from the 18th or 19th centuries at this time. Here are the two earliest dated examples from Early English Books Online. 1534, Nicholas Udall, translator, Terence's Flowers for Latin Speaking, page 14. If there shall come more hurt or displeasure unto us both, then profit thereby. 1583. John Fox, editor, Book of Martyrs, page 481. First of all, if there shall come such one, saying expressly that he is Christ, what Christian would be seduced by him, though he should do never so many miracles? Thus the phrase, if there shall come, is language characteristic of the early modern English era. 
not yet verified in the late modern textual record before 1833, when section 94 was revealed. Consequently, by 1833 it was very rare syntax, and even if textual attestations are found in the future, the wording in this case was likely to be tightly controlled. Loose control might have given us, if any unclean thing comes, if there comes any unclean thing, or if any unclean thing shall come. And fine, there were five possibilities that were more likely than the one that the Doctrine and Covenants has in section 94, revealed just after the plot of Zion. Dual object cause syntax and related structures. Besides having two instances of dual object command syntax, section 5 of the Doctrine and Covenants has one instance of dual object cause syntax. TNC 5.3, March 1829, copied about April 1829, handwriting of Oliver Cowdery. Nevertheless, I have caused him that he should enter into a covenant with me. This currently reads, And I have caused you that you should enter. I haven't found this redundant syntactic structure in the modern period yet, and I have looked for it several times. In contrast, as of this writing, I have been able to verify about 30 early modern English examples of this construction. Here is one that is very close to the original language of DNC 5.3. Uh, 1550, Nicholas Lessy, translator, Augustine's A Work of the Predestination of Saints. Their works and deeds do not cause him that he should perform that which he hath promised. In the 19th century textual record, virtually all causative constructions involving the verb cause and taking verbal complements were infinitival. Finite complementation was very uncommon by this time, probably less than 0.25% and perhaps less than 0.1%. As a result, had the language of DNC 5.3 not been tightly controlled, it almost certainly would have read differently, something like, I have caused him to enter into a covenant with me, or I have made him enter. Even if we suppose that Joseph might have opted for finite complementation here, it is extremely unlikely that the superfluous object, him, would have been used, since dual object syntax with the verb cause was obsolete or very rare by this time. Next we consider finite complementation with the auxiliary shall, which is rarely found in the early 19th century textual record. This formal language involves future subjunctive marking in the that clause, shall. The usage rate of this syntax diminished century by century from the 16th century on. Yet there are two of these rare constructions among the earlier revelations found in the Doctrine and Covenants, both beginning with, I will cause. DNC 9.8, April 1829, copied by John Whitmer about March 1831. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. DNC 21.8, 6 April 1830, copied by John Whitmer about March 1831. And I will cause that he shall mourn for her no longer. This particular construction is absent from the King James Bible, and it was very likely to be tightly controlled language when we consider it along with the obsolete dual object cause syntax found in DNC 5.3 and the nearby co-occurrence of rare phraseology such as save it was in DNC 9.7 and there shall a record be kept in DNC 21.1 and it behooveth me that he should be ordained by you in DNC 21.10. In other words, there's a slight possibility that Joseph Smith would have produced the syntax on his own, if we consider it in isolation, but that view is even less likely once we take into account other nearby or related Doctrine and Covenants language. 
Very similar to DNC 9.8 and 21.8 is the following language involving the verb suffer. DNC 10, 14, and 43, about April 1829, parts may date as early as summer 1828, copied by John Whitmer about March 1831. I will not suffer that Satan shall accomplish his evil design in this thing. I will not suffer that they shall destroy my work. This suffer syntax, with finite complementation containing the auxiliary shall, was also rare language in the spring of 1829. It is properly classified as archaic literary usage. There is one other instance of finite cause syntax in the Doctrine and Covenants that is very similar to the above. In the following example, the auxiliary of the that clause is should, for which there is matching King James language, but only two instances. DNC 2941, September 1830, copied by John Whitmer about March 1831. Wherefore I, the Lord God, caused that he should be cast out from the Garden of Eden from my presence. Even though the auxiliary should in this syntax was relatively more frequent in contemporary texts than the auxiliary shall, this usage of DNC 2941 was quite uncommon by the early 19th century. Elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, infinitival cause syntax occurs slightly more than 20 times. In the case of revelatory language, the finite rate of the Doctrine and Covenants is approximately 15%, which is extremely high for the modern period and very rare in the 19th century, but much lower than the extraordinary 56% finite complementation rate after the verb cause in the Book of Mormon. If it so be. The 1611 King James Bible consistently employs the distinctive, emphatic, hypothetical phrase, if so be, 18 times. In contrast, the earliest text of the Book of Mormon consistently employs the forward phrase, if it so be, 42 times. This categorical difference indicates tight control of this phraseology in the Book of Mormon, since it is reasonable to assume that biblical influence would have prompted at least a few instances of if so be in the Book of Mormon under loose control, or no use at all of this archaic hypothetical. The very rare usage of the subjunctive auxiliaries shall and should in the complementary that clauses after if it so be, found seven times in the Book of Mormon, cements this view. Interestingly, the only 16th century Bible that has if it so be is the 1568 Bishop's Bible, which has a single example of this. And if it so be that he find it, Matthew 18.13. This archaic phrase can be found in Chaucer's writings more than a dozen times and was used at approximately 30 times the rate in the 16th century versus the 17th century. If so be was the more frequent phrase throughout the early modern English period, but was heavily dominant in the 17th century. Consequently, if it so be is clearly a phrase that is characteristic of the late Middle English period and the first half of the early modern English period. This phrase can be found in the 19th century in novel production, but instances are very uncommon. The Doctrine and Covenants has three examples of this archaic phrase, each time followed by a that clause. Two of these have following finite, finite verbs, whose grammatical mood cannot be determined. DNC 27.2 It mattereth not what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, when ye partake of the sacrament, if it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory. DNC 61.22 And it mattereth not unto me, after a little, 
if it so be that they fill their mission, whether they go by water or by land. In both these passages, the non-biblical archaic phrase, it mattereth not, precedes the usage. The subjunctive was often employed after it mattereth not what, in the early modern English era, and D&C 27.2 has two instances of future subjunctive shall after this phrase. This is formal auxiliary usage in this context. That syntax, along with closely occurring if it so be, points to tight control in this verse. But the third case of if it so be is from an early June 1829 dictation. The surrounding language strongly suggests tight control. The earliest extant version of this case of if it so be in the Doctrine and Covenants reads as follows. Book of Commandments 1517, D&C 1815. And if it so be that you should labor in all your days, in crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it be, one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. The Book of Mormon has one example of matching syntax. If it so be that they should obtain these things. First Nephi 19.19 both passages would have been dictated at roughly the same time, and it's possible that D&C 18.15 was written down before 1 Nephi 19.19. As a result, one cannot make the case that this Doctrine and Covenants language depended on the matching Book of Mormon language. The co-occurrence of the auxiliary should, functioning as an archaic subjunctive marker, in the that clause of the non-King James phrase, if it so be, is very rare in English for any time period. To date, I have found only one matching example. 1481, translation of Cicero's Cato on Old Age. But if it so be that my soul should die with my body together. Modern instances of the syntax, if it so be that, subject, should, infinitive, may be found going forward, but probably few of them. As discussed before, save it be is also a rare phrase, and it is used almost immediately after if it so be that, should. The co-occurrence of these linguistic elements in D&C 1815 makes tight control extremely likely in this revelatory instance. In other words, it is extremely unlikely that Joseph Smith would have produced the combined wording of this passage from his own language or experience. Expedient in me. The phrase expedient in me is an example of language that we can find in the Book of Mormon once, without a verbal complement. Ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. Moroni 7-3 Also, the Book of Mormon has many cases of expedient that, S, where S stands for sentence. These Book of Mormon sentences usually contain the auxiliary verb should. Generally speaking, sentences have finite verbs, and these finite verbs can be non-main verbs such as should and shall. The Doctrine of Covenants has more than ten examples of expedient in me that s, with should as well as one with shall. Doctrine of Covenants usage is thus derivable from the Book of Mormon, but the syntax expedient in noun phrase that s is very rare in the general textual record outside of the Doctrine of Covenants. There are twenty instances of the phrase expedient in me in the current Doctrine of Covenants, and most of these are followed by dependent that clauses. In contrast to Doctrine and Covenants usage, the few relevant examples seen in the greater textual record are almost always infinitival, that is, of the form expedient in an agency to infinitival verb phrase. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the prepositional phrase in me 
always refers to the Lord, who is distinct from the entity that is the subject of the complement clause, the that clause. This is apparently what makes the language rare. The Oxford English Dictionary may not have a definition for the preposition in that is directly on point, and there are several possible meanings that we could assign to in as used in this construction. We can profitably contrast typical Doctrine and Covenants usage with the way Joseph Smith employed it in a 1 September 1842 letter that he wrote, DNC 127.1. I have thought it expedient and wisdom in me to leave the place for a short season for my own safety and the safety of this people. This is probably Joseph's own language, and it shows an awareness of language he frequently received by revelation, but he employs it somewhat differently. Elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, the verb think and the in phrase are not used together. And in the letter, the me of the phrase in me is the same as the understood subject of the infinitival complement. In other Doctrine and Covenants instances, the Lord is the one who deems something suitable or proper to the circumstances of the case, but humans are to take action or refrain from some action. We find that the three-word phrase expedient in me is textually rare currently attested in a single 17th century translation out of Latin. All things are lawful for me, but are not all expedient in me, making me better. 1646. Paraphrasing 1 Corinthians 6.12. Not too much should be made of this, however, since we can find examples of expedient in him, them, in later language as well. As mentioned, most of the time a that clause follows expedient in me in the Doctrine and Covenants. The one case with an accompanying infinitival verb phrase is the following. DNC 72.2 For December 1831, scribed by Sidney Rignan. For verily thus saith the Lord, it is expedient in me for a bishop to be appointed unto you. Here the preposition for immediately follows the phrase, it is expedient in me. And there is an accompanying infinitival verb phrase after the noun phrase, a bishop. If this passage had been phrased in the usual way, it would have read, It is expedient in me that a bishop should be appointed unto you. The phraseology with for is less archaic than the 17 instances of It is expedient in me, immediately followed by dependent that clauses. So, in its overall usage of this construction, the Doctrine of Covenants is clearly more archaic than modern. Here are two examples that employ an auxiliary, shall or should, after the subject of the that clause. DNC 35, September 1830, scribed by John Whitmer. For the time has come that it is expedient in me that thou shalt open thy mouth to declare my gospel. DNC 6418, 11 September 1831, scribed by John Whitmer. And now verily I say that it is expedient in me that my servant Sidney Gilbert, after a few weeks, should return upon his business. The manuscript reads, should. The current LDS text has shall here. The DNC 35 example is the earliest one found in this body of scripture. It was dictated more than a year after Moroni 733, the lone Book of Mormon example, which, however, has no dependent that clause or infinitival complement. The particular syntax in question, it, be verb form or phrase, expedient in, agentive noun phrase, is neither common nor rare in the textual record. But what is rare is the co-occurrence of an in phrase and a dependent that clause.
The closest match found to date with this fairly common Doctrine and Covenants language is the following. 1634, Merrick Casabon, translator, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It was expedient in nature that it should be so, and therefore necessary. In every other instance encountered thus far, either before or after the year 1700, the agent of the in phrase is the same as subject of the complement, and an infinitival verb phrase is used. The date distribution of the above 1634 example, and the seven infinitival examples isolated for this study, suggest that this language was somewhat more characteristic of the 17th century than of the 18th century, but nevertheless the usage clearly persisted into the 19th century. When we consider cases of it, be verb form, expedient, without an in phrase, we encounter hundreds of examples in textual record with complementary that clauses. The favorite auxiliary in that clauses after this impersonal expression is should, followed distantly by shall. That same tendency is reflected in both the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. The latter has twelve instances of should, as in D.N.C. 64.18, shown above, and only one of shalt, D.N.C. 35, shown above. I haven't yet found a precise match with D.N.C. 35 in the textual record, but the 1634 Casabon uh, example is structurally the same, differing only in the tense of the auxiliary. As indicated, Joseph could have derived this syntax from analogous Book of Mormon usage. The other possibility, because of how uncommon this linguistic structure is in the written record, is that expedient in me that subject, should or shall, was tightly controlled revelatory language. We do not expect that Smith would have formulated it, on, formulated it in this way in such a consistent manner from his own language. It is likely he would have expressed it another way from revealed ideas and varied the language. Even under analogy, we expect that the language would be more variable than it actually is, similar to the idiosyncratic usage found in D&C 127.1. Subsequently, no matter if we choose to think of this particular language as modern or archaic, it was most likely to have been the result of wording that was tightly controlled in its delivery. Of which hath been spoken. Section 8 originally had one example of this archaic, little-known phraseology. D&C 8.1 April 1829, copied by John Whitmer about March 1831. Those parts of my scripture of which hath been spoken. The 1833 Book of Commandments 7.1 reads, Those parts of my scripture of which have been spoken. The current reading is, Those parts of my scripture of which has been spoken. We see that hath was first changed to have for the 1833 Book of Commandments, and then later after 1844 to has. Thus it is possible, if not likely, that the phraseology dictated one month later, for which the manuscripts are lost, read the same, since later editing followed the same path. Book of Commandments 10.9, D&C 11.19, May 1829, copied by John Whitmer about March 1831, those things of which have been spoken. This currently reads, those things of which has been spoken. The Book of Mormon has two instances in the body of the work, Helaman 16.16, Ether 13.15, and one in each of the witness statements. In three of these, the antecedent is the plural, as is the case in the above Doctrine and Covenants excerpt. These may have been cases of the TH plural. Alexander Campbell criticized the Book of Mormon for employing of which hath been spoken, giving three examples of it. 
Campbell may have thought Smith had invented the phraseology in order to sound old. This is not dialectical speech, however, but formal in nature. It is uncommonly found in the early modern English era, as in these five examples. 1630, William Gouge, 1578-1653, an exposition on the whole fifth chapter of St. John's Gospel. The parts are 1a, preface, verily, etc., of which hath been spoken before. The means are expressed in these words, the whole armor of God, of which hath been spoken before. Verse 11. 1658. Francis Roberts, 1609-1675, The Mystery and Marrow of the Bible. Divine and human, and amongst divine, both of works and faith do concur, that they are compacts or agreements of which hath been spoken sufficiently heretofore. 1683, John Pettus, translator, 1613-1690, Lazarus Urker, died 1594, Fleeta Minor, The Laws of Art and Nature, in Knowing, Judging, Assaying, Finding, Refining, and Enlarging the Bodies of Confined Metals. Fluss, of which hath been spoken, is made thus, Take one part of saltpeter and two parts of argol. 1685, Thomas Godwin, died 1642. Moses and Aaron, Civil and Ecclesiastical Rites. First he consulted with his arrows and staves, of which hath been spoken immediately before. The 1683 example is a bare use, without any accompanying adverb, similar to what is found in the Book of Mormon. In addition, two or three of the above examples have plural antecedents, as we encounter in both the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. Significantly, section 8 was set down in writing before Helaman 1616 and so archaic, of which hath been spoken in D&C 8.1, preceded its use in the Book of Mormon. Suspect Grammar Now that it has been established that it is reasonable to accept tight control for a variety of Doctrine and Covenants language, we extend our view to examine some questionable grammar. This is the aspect of the revelations which has led commentators to conclude that the wording was Joseph Smith's. They did so without researching earlier English, which was extremely difficult to do until recently. We will see that the bad grammar of the Doctrine and Covenants only strengthens the claim of tight control. It does not diminish it. Close pronomial variation, you, thou. First we consider the following revelation addressed to Martin Harris. D&C 1926, summer of 1829, copied by John Whitmer. And again I command you that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely to the printing of the Book of Mormon. Here the doubtful language is the immediate pronoun switch from you to thou, and continuing with thine. There are several of these close switches in this section alone. This may have been thought to be a mistake on the part of Joseph Smith, and so you was later changed to thee a few times in this section, since the addressee, Harris, is a single person. As discussed in the prior section, dual object syntax after the verb command was rare in the 1820s, and so the you after the verb command was probably tightly controlled language. If the wording hadn't been tightly controlled here, we would expect no you here, only I command that thou shalt. There would have been only one pronoun and therefore no grammatically suspect shift in pronomial form. 
Interestingly, the immediate pronoun switching of D&C 1926 can be found in various early modern English texts, as in the following examples. 1623, James Mabe, translator, Matteo Aleman's The Rogue or the Life of Guzman de Alfarache, page 353. And in case I should go hence, I will, I will so far befriend you that thou shalt be ranked like a rogue, according as thy villainies deserve. Before 1647, Jeremiah Burroughs, Gospel Remission, 1668, page 59. And therefore I beseech you, look up higher than for such signs as reason may reach unto, and beg of God to reveal this unto you, that thou mayest have the witness of the Spirit of God to testify unto thee that thy sins are pardoned. In the 1623 example, the pronomial switch involves the same auxiliary we see in the revelation given during the summer of 1829, thou shalt. And in the Burroughs example, there are two instances of you followed closely by thou, and a continuation of thou forms, similar to the use of thine in D&C 1926. The close switch is even found in the current King James Bible. Ezekiel 36.13 Because they say unto you, Thou land devourest up men, and hast bereaved thy nations. Another biblical verse is worth pointing out as well, since it has command you, closely followed by thou. Deuteronomy 12.32 What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereunto, nor diminish from it. The Doctrine and Covenants usage in question can be viewed as a compact form of the language of Deuteronomy 12.32. Therefore, the questionable pronoun variation found in D&C 1926 and elsewhere in these revelations and in the Book of Mormon is, uh, is actually biblical and not rare in the early modern English textual record. Its usage in the Doctrine and Covenants certainly does not argue against tight control of the language or convincingly point to it being Joseph Smith's language. The adverb exceeding used with adjectives. Another type of edited Doctrine and Covenants language worth considering is the two instances of exceeding angry, originally found at D&C 87.5 and 88.87, described in late December 1832 by Frederick G. Williams. This can only be a minor point, however, since by late 1832, frequent Book of Mormon usage could have influenced Joseph Smith to adopt the typical morphological form of the Book of Mormon in the Doctrine and Covenants revelations. The Google Books Ngrams viewer currently indicates that in the 1830s, the short adverbial form without ly in the phrase, exceeding angry, occurred less than 15% of the time in the textual record. But this same abbreviated form had been dominant in the 17th century and before. Consequently, we might expect that at least one of these would have been exceedingly angry had the dictation not been tightly controlled here. A contemporary example of the modern morphological usage is the phrase exceedingly fatigued, found in a July 1833 letter scribed by Williams, but probably representing the language of Sidney Rigdon. Because this letter contains uh, an instance of exceedingly used with a following adjective, it strengthens the possibility of tight control over the morphology of the adverb in the Doctrine and Covenants by Graham exceeding angry. The 15% textual usage rate of exceeding angry in the 1830s agrees with the general rule of this decade that exceeding, used before all adjectives, was the less common form, 
20%, slowly diminishing in rate decade after decade. The crossover for exceedingly with adjectives in terms of textual attestation occurs, occurred in the 1770s. In other words, during the decade of the 1770s, exceedingly adjective finally surpassed exceeding adjective in frequency of use in the textual record. In summary, two instances of exceeding angry in sections 87 and 88 are consistent with tight control, but may also be ascribed to the influence of frequent Book of Mormon usage. If so, exceeding angry in Doctrine and Covenants revelations could be a case of indirect tight control. Close pronomial variation, ye, you. Just as we see very often in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants switches between subject you and subject ye. This was quite common during the early modern English period, and close switching of subject you and subject ye is not hard to find in the original 1611 King James Bible discussed below. In terms of the history of English usage, we find that subject you had overtaken subject ye by the 1570s as the clearly favored form in textual use. Yet, despite the pronoun ye being quite archaic, it is familiar to many because of its prevalence in older biblical versions. In early modern English, there is plenty of evidence for nearby variation of subject you and subject ye. Here are examples from the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, and a 17th century sermon. D&C 9814, 6 August 1833, copied about 6 August 1833, handwriting of Frederick G. Williams and Joseph Smith, Jr. I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant even unto death, that ye may be found worthy. The ye was changed at some point to you. There is also an instance of object you in this verse shown in italics here. Alma 520. Can ye think of being saved when you have yielded yourselves to become subjects to the devil? The subject you in this passage has remained in the text. Grammatical editing in the Book of Mormon has been uneven. 1617, Robert Bruce, 1554 to 1631. The way to true peace and rest. And if ye find these in any measure, though, though never so small, you have the right faith in your hearts. Significantly, the original 1611 King James Bible has 44 instances of subject you in the two-word phrase, that you. This two-gram can no longer be found in modern versions of the King James Bible. A sampling showed them to be edited out by 1769. There are many other cases of subject you to be found in the 1611 King James Bible besides these. Because there are so many instances of subject you in in this Bible, there are also cases where subject ye is employed close to subject you. As a result, a number of 1611 King James Bible examples straightforwardly dismiss the view that nearby subject ye you variation is ill-formed or inappropriate for a scriptural text. Here's one such example. Job 19.3, original 1611 spelling retained. These ten times have ye reproached me. You are not ashamed that you make yourselves strange to me. The two instances of you were changed at some point to ye. In view of this textual evidence, we see that the pronomial editing in D&C 9814 has had the effect of making this passage less like early modern English and the 1611 King James Bible and more like modern English. This same variation occurred in early Doctrine and Covenants and Revelations as well, as the following examples show. D&C 630, Blessed are ye, for you shall dwell with me in glory. 
DNC 17.7-8, Wherefore you have received the same power, and if ye do these last commandments of mine. Another item directly relevant to this discussion is the multiple occurrences of singular ye in manuscripts of early revelations. This questionable pronomial usage most likely represents tightly controlled early modern English usage. Lending support for the for viewing ye you variation in the same way. Consequently, what looks at first blush to be a minor grammatical error by Joseph Smith might actually constitute further evidence of tight control in the revelatory process. The TH plural. Elsewhere I have treated this topic in some depth, showing that the present tense TH plural of the Book of Mormon is not a case of conscious overuse, since there is very little of it after pronouns, and much heavier rates of use after relative pronouns and conjunctions, matching early modern English tendencies. By the 19th century, the TH plural was very rare, restricted to the archaic auxiliary verbs hath and doth. An early Doctrine and Covenants revelation, given July 1828, has an example with plural hath following the relative pronoun who. The Lamanites, who hath been suffered to destroy their brethren, TNC 3.18. In contrast to its considerable presence in the Book of Mormon, there are far fewer examples of a TH plural in the Doctrine and Covenants. Here are two possible cases with main verbs, which makes the usage anomalous for the 1830s. TNC ninety three thirty three and thirty seven, six May eighteen thirty three, scribed by Frederick G. Williams, and spirit and element inseparably connected receiveth a fullness of joy, light and truth forsaketh that evil one. These are examples with grammatical subjects made up of conjoined singular nouns. Although the nouns are fairly concrete in verse thirty three, in verse thirty seven they are not and conjoined singular abstract nouns often did not and do not resolve to plural in english nevertheless based on textual evidence even light and truth may be viewed as sufficiently distinct so that we can assume plural number resolution and later editing has treated the phrase in this way changing forsaketh to forsake and receiveth was changed at some point to receive as well indeed here is an excerpt with plural r after the subject phrase, light and truth. 1660, John Tomes, true old light, exalted above pretended new light. Light and truth are either the same or very like and helpful to each other. Psalm 43.3 Psalm 43.3 reads in part, O send out thy light and thy truth, let them lead me. This 1660 example clearly shows plural construal of the complex subject light and truth, and in Psalm 43.3 they are, they are given their own possessive pronouns and referred to with the plural pronoun them. More to the point, here are two early modern English examples with conjoined truth and light that could contain instances of the TH plural similar to the language of D&C 9337. 1618, Richard Dolman translator, Pierre de la Prima Dei's The French Academy and taught by the sovereign doctor and supreme brightness from which all truth and light doth issue. 1656, Thomas Hooker, The Application of Redemption by the Effectual Work of the Word and Spirit of Christ. But now in a godly man whose understanding is turned from darkness to light, when the truth and light of it hath by the spirit of bondage been set upon the mind and conscience, you shall see day breaking as it were. 
In summary, light and truth may be a complex plural subject in DNC 9337, and spirit and element is probably a complex plural subject in DNC 9333. From that perspective, their predicates contain main verbs carrying th plural inflection. This could be tightly controlled language, just as it almost certainly is in the Book of Mormon, because of the deep match with 16th and 17th century inflectional tendencies. Subjunctive Indicative Variation According to the current Joseph Smith Papers transcription of the manuscript found in Revelation Book 2, the following passage contained nearby variation in grammatical mood after the time conjunction until TNC 98.44, 6 August 1833, until he repent and rewards the fourfold in all things. Indicative rewards was edited for the 1835 Doctrine of Covenants to subjunctive reward, since it is under the same uncertain future time condition as subjunctive repent. Here are two 17th century examples of this close variation after the same time conjunction. 1662, Abraham Wright, A Practical Commentary or Exposition Upon the Pentateuch. So hard a thing it is to persuade sinners to believe that God is so just, or his judgment so infallible, or their sin so destructive, until the flood come, and a second deluge, a deluge of fire, sweeps them away, as that first of waters did their unbelieving forefathers. 1669, Richard Alestri, 18 sermons. Yet he reckons of all this as if he had said nothing till he speak plagues and commands afflictions. Psalm 50.21. Unlike the doubtful case of subjunctive indicative variation in DNC 9844, a solid example of such contextual variation is found in the following early revelation. DNC 3.4, summer of 18, 1828. Yet if he boast in his own strength, and sets at naught the counsels of God, and follows after the dictates of his will and carnal desires, he must fall to the earth and incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. Subjunctive boast has been changed to indicative boasts. Here are similar examples after the hypothetical if, as found in the Book of Mormon, the 1539 Great Bible, and the 1611 King James Bible. Hilleman 13.26 If a prophet come among you and declareth unto you the word of the Lord. This reading persists in the current LDS text. It is natural language variation. 1539 Great Bible, James 1.23.15.40 For if a man hear the word and declareth not the same by his works. The indicative verb in the conjoined predicate is the same as the one in Helaman 13.26. 1611 King James Bible, 1 John 4.20 If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. The language of 1 John 4.20 may be the only example of variable grammatical mood after a single instance of the hypothetical in the King James Bible. But there are a few of these in the Book of Mormon. In the King James Bible, the phrase, I love God, interrupts the syntactic conjunction of say and hateth, just as a deluge of fire does in the 1662 example after the time conjunction until. 
the intervention of extraneous elements may explain the nearby variation in grammatical mood. In any event, we can see that this kind of subjunctive indicative variation is attested in earlier English, and this may be a source of the variation found in DNC 3.4 and in DNC 98.44, if subjunctive indicative variation was in fact original to the revelation. The S plural. Linguists have called the use of is has and other present tense verb forms ending in the verbal suffix s when used with plural grammatical subjects the s plural for example in early modern english when the agreement controller is plural things we quite often see the use of singular verb inflection nevertheless it was the less common option overall in the textual record early english books online has hundreds of examples of things that is and things which is these can be found throughout the early modern English period, but the usage rate may have been two to three times greater in the 16th century than in the 17th century. Here are two examples from the 16th century Great Bible, with the original spelling retained. 1539, Great Bible, Proverbs 21.7, Jeremiah 15.19, 15.40. The robberies of the ungodly shall be their own destruction, for they will not do the things that is right. And if thou wilt take out the things that is precious from the vial. The 1611 King James Bible does not have things in either case. It has quite different language, because they refuse to do judgment, Proverbs 21.7. And if thou take forth the precious from the vial, Jeremiah 15.19. There are more than a dozen occurrences of things that or which is in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, all edited out. Here are two found in the early Doctrine and Covenants revelations. DNC 11.14, May 18.29, Handwriting of Hiram Smith. By this shall you know all things whatsoever you desire of me, which is pertaining unto things of righteousness. Book of Commandments 15.20, DNC 18.18, June 18.29. And you shall have the Holy Ghost which manifesteth all things which is expedient unto the children of men. Therefore, we can take things which is to be a feature of Doctrine and Covenants revelations as well as a feature of the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. According to the Joseph Smith Papers historical introduction, DNC 1818 was dictated in Fayette within the first few days of June 1829. Hence, it likely would have been first set down in writing very close in time to the dictation of the following Book of Mormon verse. Moroni 10.23 If ye have faith, ye can do all things which is expedient unto me. These passages contain the same six-word phrase and raise the question of which dictation occurred first. There is one other case of expedient unto in the Book of Mormon, which was probably dictated after Moroni 10.23 and DNC 18.18, Second 2 Nephi 2.27. Therefore men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which is expedient unto man. The syntactic variation seen above, things are, things which is, is similar to what we read in the following excerpt. 1661, Francis Howgill, The Glory of the True Church. And that all that come to the beginning again, to union with God, must die to all these things which is got and entered into the hearts of men since the transgression. And while these things are loved, they alienate the mind from the living God. We see that when the verb be occurs immediately after things, both in the 1661 example and in 2 Nephi 2.27, its form is R, 
but when the verb be occurs after things which, its form is is. Another similar match with early modern English possibilities is the following. Alma 9.16 For there are many promises which is extended to the Lamanites. 1671 Henry Carey, translator Jean-Francois Senault's The Use of Passions There are some errors which is easier persuaded unto than some truths. The point of presenting these cases of plural is our variation is that we encounter this sort of matching frequently in the Book of Mormon. This kind of linguistic evidence, and much more, leads to the conclusion that early modern English competence was involved in the elaboration of the Book of Mormon, and that the delivery of the text was tightly controlled. From that, it is likely that either D&C 1114 and 1818 were also given word for word, or that Joseph Smith followed Book of Mormon usage, like Moroni 1023, very closely so that the Doctrine and Covenants language was effectively controlled by way of this Book of Mormon language. Either way we choose to look at it, it boils down to tight control for this questionable Doctrine and Covenants verb agreement. This then informs our view of the following language, which in section 20 may have been a case of Oliver Cowdery borrowing directly from Book of Mormon phraseology. DNC 2017, about April 1830, some parts could have been revealed as early as the summer of 1829. Wherefore, by these things we know that there is a God in heaven, who is infinite and eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, the same unchangeable God, the maker of heaven and earth, and all things that in them is. The distinctive six-word phrase, all things that in them is, can be found four times in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, at 2 Nephi 2.14, 3 Nephi 9.15, Mormon 9.11, and Ether 4.7. Alma 11.39 is a fifth case, but it has which instead of that. Mosiah 13.19 is a biblical case because it has Tyndale's phraseology, and all that in them is, which carried through to the 1611 King James Bible. So the language of those Book of Mormon verses could have served as a source of D&C 20.17. Nevertheless, when we examine these passages, we find that there are some clear differences between them. In the Book of Mormon passages, plural heavens is used in all but Alma 11.39, the one with which, and maker is not used in any of them to describe God. Those facts, then, make a word-for-word -word borrowing from the Book of Mormon less likely in this case, but still possible. The S plural used in this same Decalogue language is attested in the textual record, though it is not found in the 16th century Bibles or in the 1611 King James Bible. Here is an instance that is nearly identical to D&C 2017 and the five Book of Mormon instances. 1665, Thomas Kerwin et al., an answer to John Wiggins' book. Thou art worthy, Lord God of heaven and earth, who hath made the heavens and the earth, sea, and all things that is in them. But this thou wilt sure say was confusion. Early English Books Online contains at least two similar examples from the 16th century with therein used for the phrase in them. Strong supporting evidence throughout the Book of Mormon leads one to take its five instances of all things that or which in them is to be tightly controlled. This combined with things which is, found at least in D&C 1114 and 1818, points to direct or indirect tight control of plural is in D&C 2017. Also worth noting is the archaic time conjunction after that, 
originally found in the phrase, for after that it was truly manifested, DNC 25, as well as the TH plural found in those scriptures which hath been given of him, DNC 2021. Part of the Painesville Telegraph version, which might have preserved the original language of the revelation in these instances. In view of all this, ascribing this verb agreement peculiarity of Doctrine and Covenants revelations to Joseph's dialect is a doubtful enterprise. Plural was. Joseph Smith certainly employed plural was as part of his speech and writing. It was part of his dialect. The early 1832 history, written in his hand, two-thirds, and in the hand of Frederick G. Williams, one-third, gives direct evidence for this. 1832 history, written down around summer of 1832, and he revealed unto me that in the town of Manchester, Ontario County, New York, there was plates of gold upon which there was engravings, which was engraven by Moroni and his fathers, the servants of the living God in ancient days. Before this we read, there were many things. So there is verb agreement variation, which we can take to have been part of Joseph's language as well. Of note is that the Book of Mormon uses only standard plural forms with engravings and the past participle engraven. Engravings, relative pronoun, are or were, have, and which are or were engraven. This tends to reinforce a view that the above non-standard verb agreement was due to Joseph's dialect. There is also plural was in the Doctrine and Covenants revelations, as this example from an early revelation shows. DNC three twelve through thirteen received during the summer of eighteen twenty eight after the loss of the hundred sixteen manuscript pages. Thou deliveredest up that which was sacred into the hands of a wicked man, who has set at naught the counsels of God, and hath broken the most sacred promises which was made before God. Earlier in this section there is also an original instance of were after plural which. The promises which were made to you. DNC 3.5. So just as in Joseph's own language, this section has fairly close variation of non-standard from a modern perspective, plural was and standard were. In DNC 3.13, we also note the use of archaic biblical set at naught and the nearby variation of has and hath. Has hath variation is not found in the King James Bible since it never employs has. But nearby has hath variation was typical of earlier writings and can be seen in these seventeenth and eighteenth century examples, which with very similar phonology and structure. Sixteen eighty Anne Whitehead, sixteen twenty four to sixteen eighty six, an epistle for true love, unity, and order in the Church of Christ against the spirit of discord, disorder, and confusion which the Lord by his power has set up, and hath given wisdom, according to true knowledge, to act in the Church of Christ. 1727, Daniel Defoe, an essay on the history and reality of apparitions. Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel, and hath delivered me. This is a close quotation of Acts 12.11, which has hath sent. As shown, both textual examples are solid matches with the variable form of the auxiliary have found in DNC 3.13. These examples inform us that we cannot be sure that the nearby morphological variation is a case of Joseph failing to be consistent. It could have been tightly controlled language that merely reflected earlier tendencies. As for plural was in DNC 3.13, we cannot tell in isolation whether it is revealed archaic language or Joseph's dialectal usage. 
Despite the inherent difficulty in deciding between loose and tight control for plural was, here and elsewhere in the Doctrine of Covenants, the earliest text of the Book of Mormon sheds light on this issue, and other linguistic evidence from section 3 does so as well. I have shown elsewhere how nearby was-were variation in the Book of Mormon is very similar to early English usage. For example, Mosiah 24.15 contains the exact distribution of variable forms that we find in the writings of the Scottish reformer John Knox, and in the writings of quite a few others from the early modern English period. Mosiah 24.15 The burdens which was laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. The change from was to were was made for the 1837 edition, marked in the printer's manuscript by Joseph Smith, see under Alma 4633, in Royal Scow's analysis of textual variants in the Book of Mormon. 1560, John Knox, 1505-1572, an answer to a great number of blasphemous cavillations written by an Anabaptist. That place of Paul proveth not that all the Israelites, which was called from Egypt, were within God's holy election to life everlasting in Christ Jesus. There is also the following match to consider, not involving variation. First Nephi 5.11 And also of Adam and Eve, which was our first parents. The change from which was to who were was made for the 1837 edition, marked in the printer's manuscript by Joseph Smith. 1566, Thomas Beacon, 1512 to 1567, a new postal containing most godly and learned sermons upon all the Sunday Gospels. Not after the manner of Adam and Eve, which was made of the ground. The five gram Adam and Eve which was, where which and was refer to both Adam and Eve, is unlikely to be found in the modern era. The archaic, systematic implementation of plural was the Book of Mormon, along with plenty of supporting lexical and syntactic evidence, points to early modern English competence and tight control over this syntax in the Book of Mormon. And it is interesting to consider that by the summer of 1828, Joseph had probably dictated several instances of tightly controlled plural was as part of the early translation that was subsequently lost. The internal evidence for treating plural was, in section 3 and elsewhere, as archaic, tightly controlled language, is found particularly in verse 15. The original language of this verse contains an interesting vocabulary item, as well as some odd syntax. DNC 3.15, copied about March 1831, in Revelation Book 1, by John Whitmer. For thou hast suffered that, the counsel of thy directors, to be trampled upon from the beginning. Plural directors reads in the singular in the current LDS text. Plural directors is found twice in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, at Alma 37.21-24. The term there refers to the Nephite interpreters. It is likely that directors in DNC 3.15 also refers to the same sacred objects, whether they are called directors, interpreters, or Urim and Thummim. The use of the verb suffer, with a following complementizer that, also suggests tight control. In addition, the archaic lexical choice of the verb suffer, instead of allowed or permitted, may be a further indication of tightly controlled archaism. As for the curious syntax, there's a switch from a that clause after the verb suffer to an infinitive, the same type of language that Joseph dictated the following year for the Book of Mormon more than once. The following passage involves the same governing verb suffer. 
4166, and knowing it to be the last struggle of my people, and having been commanded of the Lord that I should not suffer that the records which had been handed down by our fathers, which were sacred, to fall into the hands of the Lamanites. Thomas More also used this variety of suspect grammar in the 16th century after the verb think, and the following early English books online excerpt is a good match. 1598, a translation of Jacques Guillemot's The French Surgery, which was also an occasion of his racination, because he suffered that, the truncheon of a lance which stuck clean through his head, to be with force and violence drawn out. Of course, in all three cases, the auxiliary should, could have been used in place of infinitival two. Another point of similarity between DNC 315 and the 1598 early English books online excerpt is that both end with the phrasal verb in the passive, to be trampled upon and to be drawn out. In summary, DNC 315, vocabulary and syntax, as well as the Book of Mormon's varied archaic use of plural was, argue for treating plural which was, in DNC 313, as revealed archaic language, not as emanating from Joseph, Joseph's dialect. Summary of Suspect Grammar The exact syntax, command verb form, you, that, thou, is not found in either the Book of Mormon or the King James Bible. It is only found in the Doctrine and Covenants. The questionable pronominal switch, however, is attested in earlier English, with other verbs and in other contexts. This which is found in the Book of Mormon, and even in the King James Bible, Ezekiel 36.13, which contains similar language at Deuteronomy 12.32. I command you, thou shalt. It is likely that this Doctrine of Covenant syntax is tightly controlled language. The dual object construction is somewhat creative, well-formed, and archaic. The two-gram Exceeding angry is not strong evidence for tight control because of extensive Book of Mormon usage, which may have influenced the morphology and later Doctrine and Covenants revelations. Subject ye, you variation in early revelations such as Blessed are ye, for you shall dwell with me in glory, DNC 630, may indicate tight control as it matches earlier King James usage that had been edited out by 1769. Had Joseph Smith closely followed either his own dialect or a 1769 King James Bible, there would be little nearby variation. Nevertheless, if he mixed modern you with biblical ye, we do get Doctrine and Covenants usage. The TH plural, with main verbs such as spirit and element inseparably connected receiveth a fullness of joy, TNC 93.33, also indicates tight control, since it was very rare by May 1833. While this language might have followed Book of Mormon usage, the TH plural of section 3, received in 1828, the Lamanites who hath been suffered to destroy their brethren, supports the view that DNC 9333 could be independent of Book of Mormon influence. Subjunctive indicative variation is scriptural and a natural linguistic phenomenon. The DNC 3-4 example, after the hypothetical if he boast and sets and follows, preceded all Book of Mormon examples. Because this nearby variation in grammatical mood is probably tightly controlled in the Book of Mormon, there's no reason it could not have been in the Doctrine and Covenants revelations. The S plural seen in early Doctrine and Covenants revelations of the form things which or that is could have been tightly controlled. 
examples of things which is, occur sufficiently early in the Doctrine and Covenants so that their independence of rather frequent Book of Mormon usage is possible. The Decalogue-like phrase, all things that in them is, is a creative modification of biblical language, incorporating the early modern English plural is. Plural was occurs early in the Doctrine and Covenants, just after Joseph had dictated the lost 116 pages, which probably had examples of it as well. The DNC 313 instance of plural was precedes published Book of Mormon language and is therefore independent. The Book of Mormon and internal evidence argue for taking the case of plural was at DNC 313 to be tightly controlled. There's no compelling reason why this also could not have been the case in later Doctrine and Covenants examples, such as Things Which Was at DNC 3518, 7 December 1830, Glories Which Was at DNC 662, 29 October 1831, and Even Things which, from, which Were from the Beginning Before the World Was, Which Was Ordained of the Father at DNC 7613, 7 February 1832. The challenge. In general, tight control of Doctrine and Covenants language also provides greater clarity with respect to the challenge found in section 67. DNC 67, 6 through 7, about 2 November 1831, copied about November 1831 by John Whitmer. Now seek ye out of the Book of Commandments even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you. Or, if there be any among you, that shall make one like unto it, then ye are justified in saying that ye do not know that it is true. But if you cannot make one like unto it, ye are under condemnation if ye do not bear record or testimony that it is true. It is possible that this challenge would not have been made if Joseph Smith had been in control of the wording of these revelations from received ideas. At this time, there were certainly a number of church members who were better educated and more literate than Joseph was, and were able at that time to express beyond his language, all things being equal. But because the Lord was probably in charge of the wording of the revelations, any such persons were unable to surpass the revelatory language. Indeed, if we exclude the content from consideration, who among the challengers would have been able to readily produce, by dictation, some of the obscure, archaic language discussed throughout this paper? Grandstaff asserts that section 67 was not given because the elders criticized Smith's grammar. Nonetheless, it is interesting that section 66, given to McClellan days before section 67, probably contained a clear case of bad grammar. Therefore, McClellan could have very recently formed doubts about the source of revelatory language because a revelation containing glories which was was addressed to him personally and he was a school teacher and thus probably held strict views on grammatical usage these facts are certainly worth bearing in mind in relation to the challenge of section 67 analysis of some language of the plot of zion the tight control of Doctrine and Covenants language combined with Frederick G. Williams' apparent upright character and general trustworthiness, as well as his lack of experience in city planning, constitute the strongest evidence that various details of the plot of Zion were revealed and tightly controlled. An appendix contains the plot description laid out in sense lines. As mentioned briefly in the introduction, an August 2, 1833 revelation to Joseph Smith states that a pattern had been given for laying out the foundation for a city, see DNC 94, 1 through 2. 
Because of the likelihood of tight control, the import of this Doctrine and Covenants reference should be taken seriously. In D&C 94.4, dimensions are specifically given for an inner court, 55 by 65 feet, indicating that dimensions uh, could have likewise been specifically given for the plot of Zion as well. Because of substantial evidence for tight control in this and other close-in-time revelations, we can reasonably take plot measurements to have been revealed by the Lord. Moreover, Frederick G. Williams wrote on the temple plan that the city plot was revealed. See the text accompanying note 11. Nevertheless, there is a clear uncorrected error in the original plot description of June 1833, which argues that this item was not tightly controlled, and so other parts of the plot description could have been under loose control or even no specific control. In this particular case, a narrow 4 by 20 rod building lot, 66 by 330 feet, is wrongly indicated to be a quarter of an acre. Yet a simple calculation tells us that this is too small by a factor of two, and so it is no surprise that this fraction was corrected to half in the letter book one copy. However, before the incorrect figure of a quarter of an acre was written down, the governing dimension for a typical square or block had already been given as ten acres and forty square rods. This twice-specified aerial measurement along with the transparent 10 by 2 lot layout within a block, controls the size of individual building lots being one half of an acre. Thus the mistake of one quarter of an acre, uncorrected on the original plot manuscript, is not specific evidence that the block area of 40 square rods, 10 acres, was not tightly controlled, or that other independent plot dimensions, such as street widths, 8 rods, were not specifically revealed. In this same vein, there is a somewhat confusing note given on the back side of the plot that acknowledges a scribal error, and that the, that the order of two multi-word constituents should be switched, where indicated by two dotted symbols. The note calls the symbols stars. See the end of the appendix. But this same note also indicates how to group these constituents so that this error may actually provide evidence for word and constituent control in the plot specification. The beginning of the plot description reads, This plot contains one, square, one mile square. This language could be either archaic or modern, but plot, used in this context in 1830s America, was much less common than plat, and mile square was much less common than square mile. Had the language at the outset been loosely controlled, Williams might have written, This plat contains 1.44 square miles, instead of, this plot contains one mile square. Also, this measurement was not corrected in letterbook one, unlike the quarter acre to one half acre variant. The mile. The one square mile reference is the most interesting part of the opening sentence of the plot description. Either it is an obvious error, as shown by the plot draft and its description, or it corresponds to an archaic measurement of the past. We have considered one item of archaic vocabulary, strange, in Strange Act, and we have seen that the Doctrine and Covenants has archaic grammar that corresponds with 16th and 17th century usage. In like manner, there is phraseology in the reference to plot description that is possibly archaic, such as, according to wisdom, see below. And there are other potential archaisms, as discussed below. Consequently, it is not out of the question that the term mile, as used in the plot, might be a 16th century measurement.
The mile referenced in the plot draft and description is apparently 6,336 feet. This plot dimension corresponds to the Saxton Mile, in use in England before the statutory decree of 1593. That distance is determined by the language and the ground plan of the plot in the following way. First, measuring north to south, from left to right on the plot, the distance is eight streets, each one having a width of eight rods, and seven blocks, each one having a width of forty rods. Taken together, those give a distance of 344 rods. In addition, the ground plan of the plot indicates two easements, an easement of 40 rods on the north and an easement of 40 rods on the south. Half of each of those easements belong to the plot of Zion, in accordance with common approaches under property law. Thus, the total north-south measured distance on the plot is 384 rods. Because a rod is equivalent to 16.5 feet, that means that one side of the plot of Zion is 6,336 feet. Second, measuring east to west from top to bottom on the plot, the distance is eight streets, each one having a width of eight rods, six blocks having a width of 40 rods, and one block having a width of 60 rods. The plot of Zion is silent on the matter of the east and west easements, but to make a square for the entire plot as indicated by the first sentence of the plot description, each of the easements on the east and on the west must be 20 rods in width. As a result, half of the total east-west easement width of 40 rods is 20 rods, giving a square for the plot of Zion of 384 by 384 rods, or 6,336 by 6,336 feet, as shown in the figure given below. Wherefore, the mile of the plot of Zion is exactly 1.2 of a statute mile. Hence, the community plot is 1.44 square statute miles in area. Unusual features found in the city plat and the temple plan. This short section lists a number of features of the plot of Zion and the plan of the house of the Lord that appear to be rare or unique for 1830s America. Some of these are consistent with centuries-old usage. It is expected that these items will be discussed and documented in another paper. City plat. Narrow building lots, 66 feet wide. High-density living in half-acre lots, 15 to 21 persons in several apartments, the placement of east instead of north at the top of the plat drawing, 24 central buildings can provide seats for the entire community. Temple plan. Two inner courts of 55 by 65 feet, one above another. Inner court size allows seating on two-foot-wide chairs. Curtains divide the temple into four parts. 14 feet high between the floors, each story to be 14 feet. It is worth noting that the Kirtland Temple as built represents only about one-third of the prescribed plan. For example, the outer courts were left out of the temple, as was space for pulpits. The builders put all the functions into the specified inner court space that may have been as much as they were able to build or could visualize building at the time. Also, the hanging chambers mentioned not only in the temple plan, but also in D&C 9517, were not implemented in the construction. These were to be located in the upper part of the inner courts. According to Wisdom The three-word phrase, according to wisdom, occurs twice in the Doctrine and Covenants, and once on, in the plot description. 
1831, copied about 30 August 1831 by Oliver Cowdery. Behold, these things are in his own hands. Let him do according to wisdom. DNC 96.3, 4 June 1833, copied between 6 June and 30 July 1833 by Orson Hyde. And again, let it be divided into lots according to wisdom, for the benefit of those who seek inheritances, as shall be determined in council among you. 1833 Plot of Zion The ground to be occupied for these must be laid off according to wisdom. This three gram is rare in the modern era, before the 1830s, and is principally found in the 17th century textual record. The 1560 Geneva Bible is the one early modern English Bible with this exact phrase, and the foregram, Do According to Wisdom, found in DNC 6344, occurs in this 17th century example. 1638, William Chillingworth, The Religion of Protestants, A Safe Way to Salvation. For first, this is most certain, that we are in all things to do according to wisdom and reason rather than against it. King James' usage always has a determiner between according to and wisdom, and that is the more typical textual usage. The subject matter of the DNC 96.3 passage with according to wisdom is similar to that of the June 1833 plot of Zion, and laying off lots is also mentioned twice at DNC 104, 36, and 43, from April 1834. The phrasal verb lay off, as used in this context, is modern in origin, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, but the general sense may have arisen in the 17th century, and is probably tightly controlled language in DNC 104, and so, even though it could correspond to modern usage, it could have still been tightly controlled in the plot description. The S plural in plot language. There are two possible occurrences of the S plural in the plot description. All the squares in the plot contains ten acres each. And the next the lot runs from the east and west to the middle line. In the first case, the intervening singular noun plot may make this a case of proximity agreement. The adjacency of singular plot to the verb contains makes the apparent non-agreement sound less jarring to the modern ear. Here are some 17th century examples of the S plural with the verbs contain and run, a usage which may account for the suspect verb agreement found in the plot description, since it may be an archaism. 1605 LTA flourished 1592, falsehood in friendship or onions wizard or wolves in lambskins. All the forepart and exterior show of thy body is fair, yet semblable to painted and gilded sepulchres, that contains within them nothing but loathsome smells and rotten bones. 1605, Michael Drayton, 1563-1631, Poems. The river of Yarmouth runs, having west and south thereof a wood, and a little village called Thorpe, and on the north the pastures of Moshul, which contains about six miles in length and breadth. Pastures seems to be the antecedent of which, but it is not certain. This describes land in the Norwich area of Norfolk, England. 1656. Robert Reed. The Fiery Change. Though he be present in body, he is absent in mind, and either his mind wanders and his thoughts runs out into the world. 1683, 
John Reed, the Scots Gardener. Plant no trees deep, albeit some deeper than other, when their roots runs near the surface, there they receive the beneficial influence of sun and showers. The S-plural form contains occurs both times in the above examples after a relative pronoun, which is the grammatical subject and is unmarked for number. The S-plural and the TH-plural were more often found after opaque relative pronouns in early modern English. An opposing kind of agreement phenomenon found in the plot is the phrase none of these temples are, with plural are being used despite the word controlling agreement being none. If we consider, however, that in present-day English one says zero feet, etc., then we can see that any prescriptive rule against plural are in this kind of grammatical structure is artificial. In this particular case, both early and late modern English have strongly favored the use of are after the foregram none of these things. Some semantic usage. There is one term of measurement used in the plot description whose usage is found both early and late, but which is more characteristic of the early modern English period. Perch. Like rod, perch signifies 16.5 feet. The plural form perches is used six times in the plot of Zion, while rods is used only once at the outset. In all of early English books online, phases one and two, there are 46 instances of the two-word phrase perches long or wide, compared with only 16 of rods long or wide, 75% perch. In contrast, the Google Books Ngram viewer currently shows that in 1833, rods long or wide was used approximately 95% of the time, and perches long or wide only 5% of the time. I have ruled out other potentially archaic semantic and morphological usage, determining that they do not strongly point to archaism. The following may or may not represent archaic language. These include range, used to mean row, as in the middle range of squares, stand, in the phrase, the houses stand on one street. The adverb alternate, used instead of alternately, in the phrase laid off alternate. And painted, in painted squares, meaning colored. Also, inside of, noun phrase, used in the circles inside of this square, still fits the 1830s well, since it was more common in the early 19th century than inside, noun phrase which grew dominant in the 20th century. Summary of Plot of Zion Language To be sure, we can take the pattern and measurement of the 1833 Plot of Zion to be revealed because of supporting declarations made in sections 94 and by the scribe Frederick G. Williams. The term mile was probably tightly controlled since it has an obsolete meaning of 1.2 statute miles. Also, the opening sentence, This plot contains one mile square, could have been revealed word for word. The term perch could have been tightly controlled since it fits the earlier period better than the 19th century. There is some verb agreement that might have been tightly controlled since there is archaic matching of the syntax in question. However, loose control in these potential cases of the S plural is also possible. One mistake, quarter of an acre, may indicate lack of control with this dependent dimension or scribal error. But another scrabble mistake at the end of the plot description on the back side may indicate word and constituent control. One directive, of which we send you the draft, could be uncontrolled language, while another directive, let every man live in the city, 
for this is the city of Zion, could be from the Lord. See note 177. Finally, the phrase, according to wisdom, is either tightly controlled language in the plot description or indirectly controlled by way of Doctrine and Covenants language. Beyond these items, it becomes more difficult to make definitive statements. Stanford Carmack has a linguistics and a law degree from Stanford University, as well as a doctorate in Hispanic languages and literature from the University of California, Santa Barbara, specializing in historical syntax. He currently contributes by means of textual analysis to the Book of Mormon Critical Text Project, directed by Royal Skousen. This has been a recording of On Doctrine and Covenants Language and the 1833 Plot of Zion by Stanford Carmack, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 26, 2017, read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.